Well, good morning, everyone. This is Rona Palmer from Fluke Excelix, and hey, thanks for joining us today for this month's best practices webinar. In our best practice webinar series, we focus not really on technology or on our software, but rather on maintenance strategies. And we invite speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their knowledge and expertise. And I'm, I'm really excited to have with us today, Sean Eisenhower, who's the founding partner of Erodicio. And he's also, for those of you who's, who've attended our Accelerate conference in recent years, you probably know Sean is one of our most popular keynote speakers. He's going to be presenting today's topic, getting started on the road to reliability, the hard stuff. So good morning, Sean, and hey, thanks for joining, uh, joining with us today. Good morning. Uh, excited to be here. Thank you. And Sean, while we uh, give our listeners a chance to uh, log in, we have a pretty big group today. Maybe you can tell our listeners who may not be familiar with the term Eredicio, uh, um, particularly the way I'm pronouncing it, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about the derivation of that word and uh, why you chose it for your company. Give us a little insight there. Absolutely. So yeah, we'll talk a little bit about it. So Eredicio uh, is a Latin word. It really uh, has a couple different definitions, all centered around learning. Uh, but one in particular that we really keyed off is this concept of teaching and learning at the same time. And uh, a lot of what we do here at ERD Show is centered around helping individuals learn concepts so that they can teach others within their organization. Uh, we feel like that's a great way to increase the retention of the material that they're learning, but it's also a great way to get a lot of good value across, uh, across the whole facility. Excellent. Okay, good to know. All right, well, before I turn things over to Sean um, and let him present his slide deck, two quick housekeeping items. One is we are recording today's session. We'll share a copy of the recording with our um, listeners later today. And so we have all the phones muted to minimize any background noise. But um, Sean has agreed to stay until the top of the hour to answer your questions. So please feel free to Submit your question at any time, uh, type it right into the questions box in GoToWebinar, and we'll read them to Sean at the conclusion of his presentation. Also, he's agreed to make a copy of uh, the PDF of his slides available to our listeners. And um, if you'd like to request a copy, there'll be a brief survey at the conclusion of today's session where you can check a checkbox and request a copy of the slides. All right, so that's it for housekeeping. So, Sean, over to you. Wonderful, thank you. Well, we'll go ahead and get started today. Uh, we're gonna spend about 45 minutes or so with uh, a topic that really uh, is uh, challenging for a lot of folks. So, uh, we're gonna look at it from a couple different angles. I'm gonna take you guys through some of the issues that I see as people begin to try to improve reliability within their facility. All right, so a little bit about me. Uh, I always like to share a little bit about uh, me outside of work, but I'll, I'll leave in a few things uh, as well. So um, I have uh, been in the maintenance and reliability space now for the better part of my life. I started out early on in my career uh, working in a diesel mechanic shop that my father owned. Apparently, if uh, you're the kid 
uh, of the uh, of the adult who owns the business. There's no such thing as a child labor law. So I got involved in uh, reliability and maintenance pretty early from that perspective. Uh, from there, I went off to engineering school, and uh, then I've worked for companies uh, like ExxonMobil in the past and uh, found my, my way into consulting about 15 or so years ago, maybe 20, I'm getting older. Um, but uh, the reason I share that with you is I will use a lot of stories from my consulting days. Uh, one of the things I like to do when educating folks is share those uh, successes and those failures so that they've got uh, something they can relate to as we move forward. But if you look at my slide here, this is a little bit about me now. Uh, that's my daughter over in the corner. Last Halloween, we uh, found ourselves in Lowe's uh, enjoying all of their Halloween decorations. Uh, but you also can see that we are located on a World War II aircraft carrier. In fact, I'm coming to you today one level down from the flight deck on the USS Yorktown. Uh, I tell you that for two reasons. One, it's a great learning environment that we're able to use with our students. Uh, we're able to talk about reliability and then take them down into the engine room or take them to the catapults and really apply what we're uh, what we're learning. Uh, but the other reason is it is a working vessel and there is a lot of background noise that can come up from time to time. So if you hear something weird, that's probably what it is. A um, little bit more about me. Uh, I do like to uh, enjoy hobbies that have the chance to kill me. Uh, so I am a helicopter and an airplane pilot. Uh, a reliability, obviously, very, very important in that field. Uh, really hard to pull over at 3,000 feet. So uh, the last thing you see down at the bottom is a picture of a race car. And that, uh, that race car is a, a series here in the U.S. that is called Champ Car, or it used to be called Chump Car. Uh, and it's, it's budget racing. It's taking a vehicle that uh, someone has retired, someone has uh, taken to the junkyard or put in their backyard, and turning it into a race car capable of running anywhere from 8 to 24 hours at speeds in excess of 130 miles an hour. Uh, we race pretty much all over the East Coast in these vehicles, uh, but the, the thing that really uh, I relate to from this perspective is reliability is absolutely king. Uh, the races are won by less than a minute, uh, so if you have a reliability issue on this old vehicle that you're trying to do something it wasn't designed to do, uh, it takes the whole chance of, of finishing the race in first place away. So reliability becomes pretty important. For those of you that were at the keynote uh, at Luke about two, I think it was two years ago, uh, I did speak a little bit more about reliability and racing together. Uh, but today we're going to move on to getting started to getting the implementation moving. Uh, there are a lot of topics on my Reliability Now blog that you can take a look at uh, that cover this in little bite-sized pieces and can be shared with your organization. Um, but, uh, but with that, we'll go ahead and jump over into the presentation. So the backstory. Um, this presentation was born out of the fact that we've got a couple really nice implementations of reliability going on right now. And uh, they're at different levels of maturity. Uh, one in the automotive industry is more on the backside of the implementation. Uh, a couple that we're working with in uh, pharmaceuticals and chemicals, uh, as well as foods, are kind of in the middle. Uh, and then a few of them are just getting started. And as I looked over these implementations and many of the implementations that I've done over the years, 
Uh, one of the things that, that really came to mind is there are some key areas that if we don't get them right from the very beginning, it really affects our ability to be successful in the end. And it's not that we can't be successful. Many times it just takes longer or we don't make it to the level of success that we had originally hoped for. So today's presentation uh, is really about what can we do from the very beginning that is going to help us increase our probability of success as we implement a big improvement strategy like reliability improvement or asset management excellence or whatever you're beginning to implement within your facility. So to, to hit the high points, we're gonna talk about why uh, why are we doing this? Why do we want reliability or why do we want to improve uptime or OEE? Uh, we're going to talk about implementation styles and there are different styles and they do different things. Uh, so we'll hit some of the high spots there. We're going to talk about rollout areas and how important it is in selecting those elements. Scope and controlling scope creep is obviously an area that any project faces and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we are going to get into project planning or something we like to refer to as master planning. And then the last topic that I'll hit briefly, although we could spend this webinar and six more talking just about communication. So with that said, I'll be answering your questions at the end of the presentation, but as you think of them, if you want to go ahead and post them, uh, we'll go ahead and get to those at the end. So I guess the first question you have to ask yourself is why are you interested in reliability? What is the point? Are you going after more uptime because you need to produce more products? Are you trying to reduce maintenance costs because you need to produce the same product at a lower cost? Do you need to improve safety and the reactive environment you're living in is not allowing you to do that? All right, all of those are viable reasons for why you might want to implement a reliability or asset management improvement strategy. I think one of the biggest things for many organizations, though, is to take the time to clearly understand that and clearly be able to articulate it to your organization as well as your leaders. If we can't convey why we're doing this in a fairly short, concise manner, uh, we, we really may never have the burning platform to get people to move forward. When I think about certain industries especially, this can be a, a struggle uh, because they know they need reliability and they want, to improve, they want to improve it, but they make so much money or the volume uh, is so great that, that it's really hard sometimes for them to come up with uh, a, a good burning platform or a good reason for change. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end, but I want to start out the presentation by asking you the question, why? Why are you pursuing reliability? So take a second to think about that as I move on to the next slide. All right, so the next slide I've got for you is a little something I like to call the web of reliability, not to be confused with any other webs that you may have within your facilities, but what we're looking at here is one of the main reasons that organizations need to understand what reliability is first. Uh, one of the problems that I continue to see in industry is this idea that I can cherry pick my way to success. I can do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I will be reliable. And what we see in reality is that the folks that are trying to cherry pick their way to success 
either are not successful at all or are taking so long in doing so that they lose focus and other initiatives become more important. So as you look at this graphic, what I'm trying to convey to you here is that even if you pick any one of these boxes, it supports other boxes and it is supported by other boxes. So it becomes really, really important to make sure that you are in, in, are in implementing the right pieces at the right time moving forward. I'll give you an example. I think it's always good to have examples. If you were to just go out and buy a lot of predictive maintenance tools, maybe vibration, infrared thermography, uh, ultrasound, any one of the number of things that you could go out and purchase, and you brought them into your facility without putting first in place planning and scheduling and work execution, then all you would do is identify a lot of defects and then repair them through your traditional emergency response. Now, what we know is, by doing repairs in an emergency fashion without planning and scheduling, you are increasing the cost of that repair from anywhere from five to seven times what it would cost if it were properly planned and scheduled. So it's an example of where we would love to go out and buy that new technology and that shiny new equipment that we would like to have, and we want to do that. But first, we've got to have a process for using that equipment so that it can be successful and doesn't just become another thing over there on the shelf with a thin layer of dust on it. So the first question I've got for you today, the first interactive poll is, when it comes to business and maintenance business processes, what do you have today? Have you taken the time to map your processes and understand who puts in a work request, who approves the work request, how it gets transmitted over to the planners and schedulers. Do you have your business processes well documented? So the A answer here is we have absolutely nothing. B is we have documented some of our processes. C, we have documented and assigned responsibility to our processes. And D, we have documented, assigned responsibility, and we use them as part of the way we do business. So I'm going to give you just a minute or so to uh, answer the poll question, and then we'll talk about where the results of that uh, landed. Okay, the polls are open, so please let Sean know where you are with your current maintenance business processes. Now, again, these answers are only shared in aggregate, so there's no wrong answers here. It's just good to see where you, where you are in the spectrum. All right, it looks like we have about 80% in. We'll give these a few more seconds. Thanks to everybody for casting your vote. Okay, let's go ahead and share the results. So, Sean, it looks like only 5% say they have nothing, so that's encouraging. 43, the largest number, 43% say we've documented some of our processes. And then the next two are kind of split. 27% say we've documented and assigned responsibility. And 25% say we've documented, assigned responsibility, and use. All right, back to you, Sean. All right, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to give us a little bit of feedback there. So it looks like about a quarter of the, the folks that are on the call today 
uh, have a good documented process and they're using them on a regular basis. What that means to me is about 75% of them have got some room to improve our business processes. Um, and, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, business processes aren't exactly the most exciting and fun thing to map and figure out uh, and start laying them out and removing the waste. But at the end of the day, it's one of the best things that we can do. Because if we don't have a repeatable process, we can't see where things aren't working because no one is doing it the same way. So here's how you might go about doing that. What I've got here on the slide is a really quick example of how business processes are mapped. Uh, most of the time we'll use post-it notes to do these. I think many of you that are in that uh, upper 50%, you probably use post-it notes, uh, laid out your processes, figured out what decisions needed to be made, what documents needed to be moved around in the organization, uh, but the great thing about it is once you finish this process, and I've got this grayed out sample here in the middle, but if you once you finish this process, now you can decide who is responsible for each one of those boxes. Who is accountable if it doesn't happen? What support or how do they need to be consulted in order to be effective? And what information needs to flow back and forth to what individuals? So if you go through and you take the time to map your processes, the second step is to do what I just defined as a RAFD, uh, Responsible, Accountable, Support, and Inform or Information. So what I need to do is then take that and compare that against the job descriptions you have for the individuals within your organization. Now, I'll tell you, that's always kind of an interesting exercise because when you jump in there and you start looking at what you're telling people that their job is within the facility and what you're telling new hires they're going to do when they come on board with you, in reality, it's usually not that close to what the business processes really need from the role. So you got a little bit of work ahead of you. Don't just map the processes and complete the RASTI and then move on. Take that RASTI, sort it by discipline or by job type, compare that to what HR uses, and then as you move forward, you can now hire with a level of comfort that the person coming in is not going to get surprised by what's happening within the organization and that when you do performance reviews at the end of the year, you're actually reviewing people off of what they really do, not what some antiquated HR document says. So that's my quick business process mapping piece for today. I could spend a lot of time with it, but I, I just want you guys to know and that I can't say it strongly enough. Having good documented business processes that have been compared against the job description is an absolutely critical step to making sure that you can move forward in your implementation. Now I'm going to talk about just what is reliability for a few minutes. I'm not going to spend a ton of time with these slides, but, but I, you know, in case this is your first time hearing about uh, reliability improvement or you think of reliability improvement as planning or scheduling, I'm going to try to hit some of the high spots and show you some of the other things that can be part of a reliability implementation. Now, the one that a lot of people think about is plan work, all right? And I think there's a, you know, there's a common misconception in the, mar in the, in the market or in the industry today, and that is 
that that I plan a lot of work within my facility. And I'll go into facilities and I'll ask them during an assessment process, hey guys, uh, as far as an assessment goes, what would you say is the percentage of work that you're planning? And I'll get answers like 60, 70, 80, 90% of my work is planned. But then I start looking at the actual relics. I start looking at the planned jobs and I see things like replace the pump, replace the motor, change the gearbox. That is not a planned job. That is merely a work task. All right. So a lot of organizations, they say they're planning work when in reality they're at best scheduling work. And it is very important that we see the difference there because without a good job plan, chances are the scheduling hours is not going to be accurate. Chances are you're going to get a different level of performance from each person that you give that job plan to. So it brings a lot of variability into the system. So today, if you think about your organization, if you're not talking about things like backlog and ready backlog, if you're not scheduling work that has been planned down to the daily level, if you're not putting work out into the future so that you can group work together that has specific needs that are in common, like, for instance, a JLG lift or some special piece of equipment, then you're probably missing some of the value of planned execution. Another area that I see a lot of facilities struggling with, and I'm becoming more and more passionate about this one the more I spend with it, is this idea of problem solving or root cause analysis. I see a lot of facilities that have sent people to training. I see a lot of facilities that, that believe that they're getting results, but all they're using is something like five whys or fish faults. If your current reliability improvement strategy only includes five whys and fish phones as a problem solving tool, we should probably talk. And I don't have time to go into all the details today for why that's a problem, but I'm going to try to make a point uh, here with a graphic that's on the screen. When you start looking at why equipment fails or you start looking at why a process failed within the maintenance department, what I have noticed over the years and what I've learned from others that are practitioners in, in root cause analysis is that there are actions and there are conditions. There are things that happen instantaneously and there are things that happen or have existed for a long period of time. And many times when folks are only using a tool like Five Wise, they will only see part of the equation. And I'm not here to say that five whys are bad. We actually teach them in our root cause analysis class, but we take them to the next level. Uh, we show you things like fault trees and logic trees, because if I can understand all of the causes that came together to, to participate in the failure, then I can also show you lower cost solutions that reduce the risk to a level that is acceptable for your organization. And I think that's one of the key things that I, I think a lot of folks miss, is it's not about eliminating the root cause, because in many cases, there's not one root cause, there are many, and it's not about elimination as much as it is mitigation or reduction in the risk to the organization for an amount of money I'm willing to pay. And so we spend a lot of time talking about 
understanding all the causes so that we can make the best business decision moving forward. Now, another tool that we use, and I'm going to use this one to talk a little bit about reliability engineering, is the failure modes and effects analysis. Uh, I've got an example up here on the screen that you can see. There are probably 50 different templates that you can find on the Internet for doing FMEAs. FMEAs, though, while they are, are something that we do that is a little bit meticulous, they are absolutely critical to supporting the organization as it improves reliability. Now, I'm not suggesting someone would do an FMEA on every single piece of equipment in a facility. In fact, I think that's a, a gargantuan task that most people could never finish. But if you look at your critical assets, do you understand today how they fail? Do you understand how they're putting you at risk? And do you know the specific failure modes associated with that risk? Because if you know those failure modes, which we get through the FMEA process, then you can start to build a maintenance strategy that is based on how the equipment fails, not just based on what the original equipment vendor told you you should do or what someone dreamed up in the middle of the night to make themselves feel better. Now, that last point that I bring up is one of the things that we see a lot in preventive maintenance and, and even in some cases predictive maintenance programs. Someone has a failure in the middle of the night, they don't necessarily take the time to understand the root causes that contributed to it, and instead they just address the symptom by adding another step to another PM that probably wasn't getting executed on a regular basis anyway. A good example of this is where we see many times an organization is replacing belts on a, uh, say, a compressor or a motor and a, a gearbox or whatever the case may be, but it's a it's a V-belt driven system and they're replacing belts every four, five, six months. That failure has occurred, so instead of understanding why the failure occurred, we've simply made a PM task to replace the belts on a regular interval. Now, in reality, those belts should be lasting a lot more than five or six months. But if you don't understand the failure modes of that piece of equipment, if you don't understand why those belts are breaking, then you'll never really be able to get that full life, and you'll find yourself chasing uh, reliability through added PM steps. Now, what I see many, many times with belts especially is something that we could fix um, relatively quickly, and that is just simply understanding if the shivs are worn out. Because in many of the facilities that I, I work in and, and spend time with, I find the pulleys or the shivs that are worn out. And because they're worn out, they're causing the belt not to ride at the appropriate location, and it's causing them to fail. So in reality, changing those belts on a regular basis is an expensive solution to simply putting on a new pulley uh, and being able to get the full life from those 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 shivs uh, or pulleys. So FMEAs and reliability engineering is all about understanding how your equipment fails, understanding how you apply the predictive technologies against those failure modes, how you apply preventive maintenance against those failure modes, and how you optimize your PMs based on real data and not just a lot of thoughts and middle-of-the-night prayers. Now, one of the next things that I think is very important, and it's an area that I continue to see 
organizations struggle with, and I mentioned this in the opening section, is having a clear way to explain what you're doing from a reliability or asset management improvement standpoint and why you're doing it. And we like to steal one of the tools from the lean production system or the Toyota production system, as some of you may know it as, uh, and that's a simple A3. And I've put a very, very simple version up on the screen for you to take a look at. But what you see here are four boxes on an A3 size sheet of paper. In these four boxes, I can convey exactly what it is we're trying to do. And then I can also talk about where we are today, where we want to be in the future, and how we're going to get there. Even if you're not using the A3, I would challenge you. Do you have a simple one-page way to convey why you're doing reliability, what is out there today, where do you want to be in a year, and how are you going to get there? And the A3 does a great job of making that happen. Now, another area that tends to trip people up when they're beginning to implement reliability is when the leadership team does not stay ahead of all of our focus teams. In the previous example, I showed you the current condition, and I broke that down into four areas. Work execution, operator care, reliability engineering, and predictive and precision maintenance were four areas that, that an organization wanted to focus on to improve their reliability. They wanted to group all of the topics into those categories and have those focus teams address each of these areas moving forward. What is absolutely key, though, to that organization is that the leadership team has to finish their A3. They have to have a clear vision, a clear understanding of the risk associated with the implementation, and a clear communication plan so that they can stay ahead of the focus teams and the organization. If the focus teams or the organization ever catch up or pass the work of the leadership team, they will begin to get confused and they won't understand the direction and where we're headed. So if your leadership team isn't out ahead of your focus teams, that is something you definitely want to address early on in your reliability implementation. Now, another area that, I, again, a lot of the stuff that I'm sharing with you today, it's not what we would call sexy, it's not what we would call fun, but it's absolutely required to be successful. You have to map business process. You have to have a clear vision or A3 that tells me where we're going. You've got to have a plan. If you don't have a plan for how you're going to implement something as big as reliability, you'll find yourself veering off down paths that aren't the direction you want to go. You'll have scope creep within your project. You'll have people that are confused about what part is theirs to do versus others in the organization. So creating a really solid project plan for implementing reliability improvement is absolutely critical. Now, I've seen many organizations create a great plan, but failed to manage with that plan. And that's the next part of what I want to talk about from this perspective. If you're implementing reliability and you've created the plan, don't forget to keep it up to date. 
Don't forget to update the percentage complete, where you've had to move things around because of people changing. All of those things need to be reflected in your project plan. What I will tell you, it is a little different than a traditional capital plan uh, where you're implementing assets or equipment. Um, it's a little harder to predict how long it's going to take elements of the organization to adopt the changes that you're trying to make. So don't be surprised if you see a little slip or a little movement as you're implementing things. That's fairly normal for a people implementation, even though you wouldn't necessarily want to see a lot of that in your next capital project. Now, implementation style is an area that I have really become passionate about recently, and I, I want to talk a little bit about it, and I'm going to show you a model for how I believe it can most effectively be done. A lot of individuals, while they haven't chosen to cherry pick from the web of reliability I showed you earlier, they, they've decided to do all of the things that they need to do in an order that will work for them, but then they make what I believe is a mistake of choosing to implement across the whole facility at once or implementing too fast across the facility. Now, I'll show you in a few minutes in the people section a few reasons for why I believe that's a problem um, based on the knowledge of some of the leading change experts in the industry. But just to tell you up front, you know, if you're looking at your plant and you're wanting to implement reliability improvement and you're going to fix the fact that your planners aren't planning jobs and that you're not using work orders and that you're not using failure codes and you're not doing good PMs and you haven't optimized your PMs in years so they're not failure mode based. You haven't done RCA or root cause analysis and you don't have a process for it. But this is a very broad change that you're making. And if you try to also broaden the scope to do a whole entire facility, my my experience tells me it's going to slow your implementation implementation down tremendously. I believe that you'll have limited early momentum. You will be pushing a rope in some cases instead of it being a pull from the organization. You will have a slower implementation pace, and I also believe from my experience, you have a much higher stall probability, a much higher chance of getting to a certain point and the organization just getting tired and losing its way. So, what I suggest to you, uh, again, based on science from leading chain man change management uh, a experts, which I'll, I'll get to in a few minutes, I believe you have to have a pilot area. And you need to let that pilot area get implemented, get accustomed to doing things the new way, and get results before you start moving on to the rest of the organization. If you do that, the success that you have in the pilot area creates a pull from the rest of the organization, allowing you to implement with a much heavier sense of momentum as you move. Now, one of the ways that we like to do that is with our IBL implementation model. And it's, it's fashioned after a light bulb. And you can see there is a leadership team at the top. And you can see that on that leadership team, they're representatives from all the different areas in the plant. There are different colors that match the areas down below. You can also see that they have focused teams that are focusing on certain parts of reliability so that everyone doesn't have to be an expert on everything. Some are focused on, on work control. Others are focused on materials management and, and reliability engineering. But you also see 
after they've mapped their processes and they've decided how they're going to do their specific area in the organization, they are implementing it in that pilot area. And that's the center of that light bulb there. Now, as they implement in that pilot area, as I said, they're getting success. They're trying things out. They're making tweaks and changes. They're doing all the things that they know they have to have uh, in order for it to stick and work across the rest of the organization. Now, after we've done those things, now we can roll out into the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth areas of the plant. All right, we take that success in that pilot area and we use it as a springboard to carry it to the rest of the organization. What you'll also notice, though, is the pilot area focus teams are not just pilot area people. You can see the colors. They're coming from different parts of the organization. So everyone was involved and everyone got to see it implemented in that pilot area before they had to take it out to their area across the rest of the facility. Um, so again, the implementation model to us, we think is absolutely critical. Uh, so if you haven't put a lot of thought into how you're going to implement, where your pilot area is gonna be, that's something you're gonna wanna think about moving forward. Now we have some tools that can help with selecting a pilot area, so if you have questions about that, what I will tell you is your pilot area has to be successful. So don't pick the area you need it the most, pick the area that you can be most successful. This is an example of, of one of the tools that we use to actually select that pilot area. Um, this thing's uh, a, a couple of pages long, but I wanted to kind of uh, put it up here so you could see what it might look like. But it helps us to look at weaknesses and strengths and opportunities that each of the areas of the plant has so that we can really understand can they be successful as our pilot because the worst thing that could happen is for our pilot area to stall or or struggle to the point that we never get out to the rest of the organization now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that the leadership team needs to understand risk. And I talked about an FMEA in the reliability engineering section. A rather unique way that we use the FMEA is actually at the business level as well. So if you look at your reliability improvement initiative, what are the risks associated with it? What, what could go wrong as you implement reliability? I can tell you some of the common ones that we see are the leadership could change or we could see a change in products or we could see uh, a change in business need. Uh, but there'll also be things like the organization or the engineers may not accept it or the mechanics may not accept it. But these are all kinds of risks that are associated with implementing reliability. If the leadership takes the time to do this really negative exercise early, it helps us figure out what we want to do to mitigate these risks in advance and model the proactive behavior that a good, reliable organization has. So this FMEA is one of the tools that we use. Set up just like a traditional FMEA, it has severity, occurrence, and detection, uh, but here we're simply talking about the things that could cause the initiative to go the wrong direction. Now I want to give you just a few minutes before we transition into communicating to the rest of the organization. I'd like for you to take about one minute to go through the six question quiz. 
And this is really supposed to look at how you implemented the last change you made in your organization. It could be anything, anything that you've changed recently. So think about that change and give yourself a, a one if it didn't go quite like we wanted it to, and a five if, man, you were an absolute rock star. So take about a minute, read through the six questions, total your score up, and then I'm going to ask you to tell me uh, in the poll in a few minutes where you fell out. Again, we won't share these as an individual level. We will only look at them as a group, so there's uh, complete secrecy from that perspective. Take about a minute. All right, so you've got a score now. You've got six questions. You've got a max score of 30 here. We're going to go to our poll, and our poll is going to allow you to communicate a little bit about uh, how you did. So if you're an A, you ace this thing. You got all 30 points. You are a rock star when it comes to communicating about change initiatives. B, come on, coach. I only missed a few, 25 to 30. C, Maybe I could use some review on my communication style, 20 to 25. D, wait, it's my job to communicate the change, 15 to 20. And the last one, I'm an engineer, so I can say this, I'm an engineer. I got a score of less than 15. All right, so take a minute, answer the poll for us. Uh, she's going to launch the poll here in just a second, and we'll see how you guys did. All right, the poll is open, so tell us how you did in that quiz. I'm going to vote as well. Okay, we've had half the votes in. Leave this open in maybe another 30 seconds or so. Okay, a oh, couple more coming in. All right, great. Let's go ahead and see how we did. So, Sean, 3% our listeners said they aced it. They got a 30. 15% said oh, they missed a few, 25 to 29. 42%, the lion share, which included me, by the way, said need some review, 20 to 24. Um, 25% said, wait a minute, is that my job? And I guess 14% are engineers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank, thank you for taking the time to, to both take that poll, but also give us the feedback. Um, uh, it, you know, it's kind of fun. I'll be honest, I am not ACID. I do not get A's on this. Uh, within the ERD show organization, we do communicate changes on a regular basis, and I, I continue to kind of, uh, you know, miss things here and there. So what I would suggest for you is using the risk pool that we just talked about to really understand what your risks are. And then using a communication plan to know what you're going to communicate, 
who the audience is that you're going to communicate to, what you want them to take away from it, how you're going to deliver it, who needs to send it, and when in the implementation it needs to be sent. I know this may seem a little linear, but if you can lay out this communication plan and execute it well, it will help you to stay just ahead of the need and have a much better uh, implementation of change initiatives. Again, this is another topic I can spend a ton of time with, but we're going to go ahead and move on. So remember, when you're, you're communicating to your organization, people see things differently. Some of you are looking at my screen right now and seeing six animals. Others of you are seeing three animals reflected. All right? And I use this slide to really drive home the point that you've got to put yourself in the shoes of others and understand how they're going to receive the message so that you can better communicate it. And that's part of communication planning. You know, if they've heard things in the past, they're going to have preconceived notions. They're going to have a different way of looking at it. And we've got to take that into consideration as we go in and start planning for that communication. Now, I've got three models here to kind of wrap the day up. Uh, these are something that if you've seen me uh, give presentations, I talk about all three of these tools on a regular basis. Today, I want to share them with you by name. I want to point you in the right direction with them. Uh, and then if you have questions about them, I would be more than happy to spend some time with you on a phone call kind of talking through them. But the first one that I have here is a model called the ADFAR model. Uh, developed by a company called ProSci. Uh, they're a great organization who spends a lot of time focused on how people change within organizations and how organizations change. And I use the ADCAR model as a checklist to make sure that I'm doing all the right things in my communication plan to get people to join me in the initiative and the change. The letters stand for awareness desire, knowledge, ability, and reinforcement. And you need all of those. You need to create awareness before you can create desire. You have to create desire before you can give knowledge. If you give knowledge but never have the individual apply it or develop the ability to use it in the real world, it has no value. And if you don't reinforce it on a regular basis, they'll go back to the old way of doing it. So that's the ADCAR model. The second model is the black and gray boxes down below, all within the blue era. And uh, this is an adaptation that I made from the Cotter model for organizational change. Uh, Cotter has done an incredible amount of research in how organizations change. And I really love his book, Leading Change, and I absolutely recommend it to anyone. Um, but I've added a few things to it that kind of helped me talk about why some of the issues that we had earlier are so important to address early. You see, I added a box called master planning, because if I'm going to create short-term wins, then that means I've got to have a plan to roll that out across the organization. One of the things that I also see leadership teams do is they don't stay in touch with their focus teams and continue to remove the roadblocks that those focus teams are facing. So I've added that in. And then the last gray box that I added into Potter's model was controlling the pace. And because you are 
creating a pilot area, and because that pilot area is having success, some folks are going to want to run over and copy what they see. And a lot of times what you can see in a change is only the very surface of what's actually happening. And so as I look back over initiatives that I've implemented over the years, many times some areas would try to get out ahead of the implementation. They would start doing it and fail, and then when the implementation actually arrived, they would say things like, well, we've tried that and it won't work here. So controlling the pace, making sure that we don't get out ahead of the implementation are some of the things that I think if added to the Cotter model gives you a really good checklist or model for implementing big deal change in your organization. <clears throat> now the last thing that I'm going to briefly hit on is something called situational leadership. It was developed by Ken Blanchard. And I highly recommend that you take a look at it. It's how the leaders in the organization have to change in order to make the change move forward. Um, those focus teams, they're going to move through various levels of need and they're going to change their desires as they do. And if you as a leader aren't making sure that you're meeting their needs at those levels, they will stall out. Uh, and some of you have heard me tell the story of, of me making a very, very poor choice in one of my implementations because I didn't understand that needs change as the organization moves. So um, you may want to think about that, do a little more research into situational leadership. I know that you can definitely find some information on the web, or you can read it, reach out to me, and I'll tell you more about it. Now, I've got a video here. It's going to begin to play. Uh, if you can't hear the video, I will share with you a URL at the end that you can go back and take a look at. But I want to show you what I see in a lot of plants today. Hi, I'm Brandon Lee. Will you be an angel for a helpless piece of equipment? Every day, innocent assets are abused, beaten, and neglected, and they're crying out for help. Go to the website on your screen and join the IPL experience. With an annual enrollment, you can expect a 10 times return on investment by saving countless assets from their users.
All right, everybody reach up and grab a tissue. Um, it's pretty sad to watch those poor assets as they plummet into death and despair. Uh, but I really wanted to show that to really explain this is why we do reliability improvement. It's to get rid of these things that we walk past on a regular basis and don't realize that they're there. If you had any trouble with the audio or you'd like to show the video to someone else, you can go to www.ibltraining.com and that video is about halfway down the page. So you just roll down a little bit and you can take another look at it. But kind of a fun way to think about where in your plant do you have things that look just like these? So with that said, that's it for me today. I'd like to take your questions. We'll try to answer some of those. I don't claim to have the answer to every question, but I do know a lot of folks that I can connect you to if we, uh, if we don't have an answer for a specific question. Great. Okay. So please go ahead and type your questions in the question box um, and I'll read them to, uh, to Sean. Sean, something you said that I thought was very interesting early on about uh, many of us consider it planned work when um, we just decide to do a certain task at a, at a periodic schedule. And, and you're saying that's really scheduled work and not planned. So can you maybe tell us what makes it planned work? When you say you need a master plan, what is it that makes it transitions it from just being something that's a scheduled task to actually being planned work? So planned work for me, it has steps that we go through. It has, and I'm going to give real examples, it has torque specs for the bolts so that I know what to torque the bolt to. It has belt tension for what tension the belt needs to be. If I need special tools, it calls out those special tools and makes sure they're available. Um, it tells me all of the things I need to do to do that job effectively. And a lot of folks, this is this is one of those topics where a lot of folks ask a lot of questions. You know, how much is too much? And, and do I create a training document or do I just create a step uh, list of things to do? And a little bit, it depends on your organization. Many folks want to make sure that they're at least planning jobs to the average craft skill level in the organization. Um, I have a lot of opinions on this. I can't cover them all here right now, uh, but I would love to chat with folks on them because having good job plans is how you reduce infant mortality. And by reducing infant mortality, you reduce the amount of emergency repairs that you're having to do, therefore giving you more uptime, giving you lower costs. So it really is critical and foundational to get that right. Excellent. Um, here's someone asking a question that I gather is kind of about culture, um, saying if you have a culture that has both MEs, I think they mean manufacturing engineers, and REs, or reliability engineer responsibility. Um, if you have both of those, and now you want to foster more of a reliability engineering culture, uh, can you maybe share some insight on how you go about um, kind of uh, having more people embrace the reliability type of culture in that environment? Absolutely. Well, first of all, congratulations to whoever asked the question because so many organizations today don't have the benefit of having maintenance engineers and reliability engineers. So I feel like I need to address the differences a little bit because I think it will help in the discussion. I'm going to grossly oversimplify this for the sake of time. 
But if you think about a maintenance engineer, a maintenance engineer is really focused on mean time to repair. They're focused on things in the day-to-day that will make the maintenance guys more effective and more efficient. Whereas a reliability engineer is more focused on the future. They're focused on mean time between failures. They're focused on making the assets run better long-term across the organization. And I know that's a simplification of the differences, but if you think about it from that perspective, what I see a lot of organizations do is they start really heavy on the maintenance engineering side to try to get rid of the introduction of defects that they're they're having to deal with. But then as they mature and as the organization matures, they transition more and more of those reliability engineers or maintenance engineers over to reliability engineers. Reliability engineers are a lot like planners. They're focused on the future. They're not worried about the thing that happens today. They're worried about the trends. They're worried about what the data is telling us. They're trying to get ahead of these things. So just by transitioning the number of REs you have, can be one way to start that process. The other, though, is really starting to to show people how to be proactive. And I think reliability engineers have to model this. I think they have to educate on it. And I think it is absolutely critical that reliability engineers have a little bit of a sales acumen, meaning that they've got to sell while we're doing this. Because many of the things that reliability engineers bringing to the table are not for today, they're for next year or the next, and they've got to sell that to the organization. Great. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to combine two questions, Sean. Someone is asking, uh, it's, I think it's really around payback. What percentage of labor cost improvement can be expected when you implement a, a robust planning and scheduling um, culture, and also are there other industry standards related to reliability to help you um, justify the implementation? So maybe you can share a few industry standards or benchmarks when people have gone on this journey. Absolutely. So I'll answer this question in two parts. I'm going to start with the easy answer. First of all, if you're not a member of the Society of Maintenance and Reliability Professionals, uh, and if you haven't heard of that, you can go to smrp.org. That is a great organization to learn more about best practices, what metrics are being used, what good definitions are within their metrics compendium. Uh, there's just a lot of great resources there to better understand where you are compared to your peers. Um, we can also help you with that from an assessment standpoint. Um, but, you know, if you're just getting started, you may want to justify the whole process and, and getting involved there can really help. Now, I have a ton of good, um, good, you know, estimates for what you can expect from a reliability improvement. It's a little bit, um, it's a little bit irresponsible for me to say um, too much about those because I don't know the current condition of the facility that the gentleman or lady was asking from. Um, but what I will tell you is. On average, my experience says that in North America, we run somewhere around 15 to 25% wrench time or active time on the job performed by maintenance craftsmen. And what I know is that in an organization that has really solid planning and scheduling processes and has all of the 
job plan libraries and things in place to be successful, that they typically see wrench time around 55 to as high as 65%, depending on the definition that you use. So if you think about that, to answer the question very directly, if you're less than 25% wrench time today and you can get to 50%, you're doubling your throughput on a day-in and day-out basis. So if you can't get your PMs done in a timely manner or you can't get uh, all of your backlog under control, just imagine what you could do if you could, in essence, double your workforce. Excellent. Okay. Well, we've had a lot of questions. I think we have time for one more. Here's someone who's part of a team trying to get started with reliability. And maybe you can just share everything you discussed today. Can you give some guidance on what are a couple of pitfalls to avoid along the way? Absolutely. So a couple of, pit, a couple of pitfalls from a reliability standpoint. I, I definitely would make sure you have a clear vision for where you want to go and when you want to get there. <clears throat> I think that has to be communicated out to the organization by the leadership team. And people need to hear it from more, more than one person. They need to hear it from the HR manager, the controller, the ops manager. They need to hear it in a unified message. Even though we use different words, it needs to be the same thing that you hear from these folks as they talk. And that takes practice. That takes work. Um, I definitely would suggest that you sit down and think about all the things that are a risk to your implementation and prioritize those risks and figure out how you're going to address them. Because if you can model proactive behavior as you're implementing, it'll be easier for folks to be able to then become proactive as you implement. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Sean. And um, <clears throat> I'm afraid we've run out of time for today's session, but please don't let the dialogue end here. And Sean has uh, you know, given you his contact information. And um, as you mentioned, we'll be happy to, to um, answer additional questions. So thanks so much, Sean, for putting this together and uh, sharing your knowledge with us. And uh, it was really a great overview. We appreciate it. And uh, thanks to all our listeners today to take an hour out of your day and um, be with us. And also, I don't often do this, but also thanks to the Fluke team who you don't hear, you hear me on the phone, but it kind of takes a village to put these together with all the planning and prep and appreciate all the efforts of everybody who's helped bring these to light. And toward that end, there'll be a survey when we end the webinar. Please let us know, take a moment and let us know what other topics are on your mind, what other kinds of things that we can get um, experts like Sean and others to present that will really help you in your journey. So. Thanks again, Sean. I'll let you get back to the. Uh, I'll let you get back to the ship. <laughs> and uh, um, thanks again to our listeners, and we'll see you all the next time. Bye Thank now. you. Thank you for having me. Thanks.